Well, I'm delighted that you've joined me for this Good Friday message in which we're going to take some time now and just uh, consider what it means to be at Good Friday. What it means, uh, what happened between the time of Palm Sunday leading up to Good Friday. What, what, is, what does Good Friday mean to us as Christians? And I want to encourage you to settle in, to put aside your busy day, to take a deep breath, and spend some time with me as we go through the Scripture. Let the Scripture speak to us. Let the Spirit speak to us through the Scripture. Uh, give us some time. Treat this study with some solemnity. Uh, I will do my best to present it to you in a way that I hope is clear and um, simple and yet uh, conveys the profundity of what is being said here. Uh, it's a, This is a time of year where we are called to reflect, <clears throat> called to remember our salvation on the basis upon which we have this glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. So, I'm glad that many of you have been with me all week as we've looked at Holy Week together, as we've walked with Jesus and we've seen Holy Week, hopefully somewhat, through the eyes of our Lord. It began, of course, on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem at the cry of the people, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Uh, people that would some days later be crying, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But nonetheless, our Lord has entered Jerusalem at the God-orchestrated acclamation, at least temporal acclamation, of the people. And so the messianic prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus has, is the son of David, the only son of David, the true, long-awaited-for son of David, God's true king. And now he's gone into Jerusalem. He has inspected the temple. That was the first thing he did. He had every authority to write to do that. He inspected it, meaning he looked at what was going on there. He observed what was happening at the temple. And then, interestingly enough, he and his disciples, because it was late in the day, went out to Bethany, which is a short walk uh, from the temple grounds. And the next morning, you recall, they were coming back towards the temple from Bethany, and Jesus was hungry. And he saw a fig tree with leaves on it, which was every indicator uh, that their indication that there was fruit. Well, when he came to it, it was fruitless. And where you usually have leaves, you always have fruit. Uh, leaves and fruit grow together. Uh, and so it was strange that, that this fig tree had leaves but did not have fruit. It was an anomaly of nature. It was a fruitless tree that had all the appearances of fruit. That's what shouldn't. That's a point that should not be lost on us, because the day we live in a day where religious is being religious is primarily about appearances. In fact, almost all that's what it is. It's about appearances. So Jesus cursed the fig tree. May no one ever eat of you again. And his disciples were listening to him do that. And so he goes then into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple with his disciples. He encounters those who are there um, uh, in their daily retail religion. We discover that Jesus overthrew and, and cast out those that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew the tables and the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves 
The people were treating the temple like a retail warehouse. They were treating religion like a source of either profit uh, or some kind of a, a circus spectacle. They, were, they knew intuitively that it was a good thing for them to do. The law commanded them to attend the temple worship, certainly to attend the feasts. And so there was an air of credibility to it, but their behavior and their attitude towards it had turned it into a religious circus, into a, a robber's den, a den of thieves, a place of irreverence, a place where it was just casual. And we live in that kind of a day-to-day where we approach the things of God in a casual way. We barely have time for it. It's always amazing to me how I, too, can I can watch a 90-minute documentary on nothing on TV, or I can watch a few sitcoms back-to-back, or I can watch one of my favorite shows, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I can easily invest sometimes one to two hours watching television and be somewhat offended if somebody wants to go over 30 minutes in a sermon. Now, there are some sermons that are offensive after five minutes. (laughs) because they're either so shallow or so ridiculous or so unbiblical, they don't deserve to be listened to at all. But that aside, we have to presume that the Word of God is being preached. It is my endeavor to do that for you. And so we want to be careful not to treat our approach to God in some kind of a hastily put-together, busy, impatient thing, but to pause and and to treat this Good Friday in the solemnity that it deserves, and the sobriety it deserves, but also with the joy for which it is worthy. And so today we're going to look, continue to look at Jesus walking through and up to Good Friday. Well, after he cleansed the temple, back to our review, after he cleansed the temple, uh, he was challenged about his authority. And... Um, and then when on the way back, on the way back, the disciples discovered, Peter being the spokesman, that the fig tree had withered to its roots. And we learn from that, that when Jesus curses false religion, fruitless religion, think of that. Fruitless religion is only worthy of a curse, divine curse. And Jesus was the messenger of that curse at that moment. So we must be very mindful We must be very aware of the fact that God has called us to fruitfulness in our spiritual life, fruitfulness in our relationship with him. God is not at at all, he's not even in the least interested in our mere appearances. God is looking for the fruit in your life, the fruit that only he can produce, by the way. We're not out to produce fruit so we can be commended to God but we prove that we have been accepted by God in Christ by the fruit of our life. That itself is a radical statement in our day of superficial religion. So it's very sobering to realize that Jesus cursed that tree, but it wasn't a superficial cursing. That cursing was not just of the leaves that then dried up, but the tree itself down into its roots, and Peter was astonished by this. And Jesus responded to Peter, well, that's what happens when I curse something. No. He said, have faith in God. In other words, 
Jesus turned Peter's attention away from the cursed fig tree and to the truth that, that the redemption that was coming into the world, that Jesus was bringing us into the world, was based on faith. A faith that would be so powerful, not in necessarily quantity of faith, but quality of faith, that it could move mountains. And that a faith that produced a character within us that, that caused us to, to pray, but to pray by, uh, and, and to include forgiveness in our prayers. As we seek forgiveness from God, as we seek uh, fellowship with God through prayer, we stand forgiving others who have sinned against us. It's part of that faith. In other words, true faith helps us realize our need for God. And now having had that need so wonderfully, gloriously, and adequately forever met in Christ, we have nothing, we have no moral ground to hold resentments towards others. But we are to be forgivers as we have been forgiven. So now we skip a little bit ahead, since this is Good Friday. Ahead in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 12, 11, where we're going to retreat a little bit, a few steps back, and move forward a little bit faster. And then we're going to look today at the uh, teaching that led up to Good Friday. And then I'm going to close today with a lesson from Hebrews that helps us remember the nature and the glory of the blood of the covenant, the blood of the new covenant, that was consecrated, the new covenant on this day. So let's begin then. Just Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 reads like this. And they came again to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm reading, by the way, through the authorized version today, only because as I did so, it was there was such a rhythmic poetry to it. And it touched me at such a level that I thought it might do you as well. So, We'll, we'll enhance the solemnity of this day by stretching ourselves to hear the authorized version as well. Verse 27 of chapter 11 of Mark. And they come again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men... They feared the people, for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered him and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pause there. Our first section here in our first reading today then is about authority, isn't it? Who has the authority here? The leaders? of the system, 
an apostate religious system, a system that was designed and ordained by God through Moses to be a, a type and a shadow that pointed the people to the Messiah. If they had been reading the law properly, if they had been observing the temple worship properly, if they had been participating in the sacrifices properly, if the people had been well instructed by a clergy that had their own minds set on pleasing God instead of themselves, they would have immediately recognized the Messiah as the fulfillment of that system. Instead, over the centuries, that system had developed into a self-contained system that actually opposed the redemptive purposes of God. It actually opposed the very knowledge of God and turned people away from looking for the Messiah as his fulfillment and to see the system itself as the end. That's important to understand. Who has the authority here? The system that has turned in on itself and appointed itself as the end instead of the means? A system that had turned in on itself and presented itself as the the means, even the God-ordained means by which men could receive righteousness, the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven? And no longer as a system that was a temporal type and shadow that would be fulfilled later in the Messiah. No, they moved away from that purpose. Let me emphasize that. They had moved away from that purpose, just like many have done today throughout church history. By the 8th century, the Roman church had turned in on itself. It had become a sacramental system in which Salvation was no longer in Jesus Christ, but in the Pope, in his system, in his system of sacraments, from cradle to grave. The people, instead of hearing the word of God from the clergy, heard about the system. The people, instead of being called to to hear and submit to the gospel, the good news of their salvation, were instead called to hear about the system and submit to it and to depend on the system itself and not Christ alone. Instead of glorifying Christ, the system glorified itself. I can't emphasize that enough. And so now the question before us is this, by our first reading, who has the authority to save you on this Good Friday? Who has the authority to save you on this Good Friday? Western Christianity has stepped into a a time of apostasy. In Timothy, we're told, in the later times, many will fall away from the faith. I don't think we have to be fanatical or melodramatic to say that we are in those times where many are falling away from the faith. The faith of Christ the faith that centers on Christ. Many megachurches today, many mainline denominations, many systems, both Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, are systems unto themselves. You are saved through the church. 
you are not saved through Christ. Many hyper-Calvinistic, uh, hyper-Calvinistic, hyper-charismatic, I should say, what I'm trying to say, hyper-charismatic leaders today will extort money from you by teaching tithing out of Malachi. Warn you of the curse of the law if you don't tithe. Warn you of demons attacking your finances if you don't tithe 10% of your gross income. They will tell you that if you get out from underneath the church, that you are out from underneath God's covering. In other words, there is this default mode. It's not just first century Judaism. Listen, I told you in, in a previous episode, these religious leaders in first century Judaism were not doing this because they were Jews. If we think that way, they were simply being anti-Semitic. These people were doing this because they were human. It's the natural human default to claim the authority to save you when they have no authority at all. That authority lies with Jesus. And so Jesus tells these people, this is not your, this is not your thing. You, you have no authority. But let me ask you a question. Where, do I, where did John get his authority? And then I'll tell you where I got my authority. And that confused them. Well, if we say from heaven, then they'll simply ask, why didn't we believe? I mean, it makes sense, right? If it's from heaven, you should believe. But if we say it's from men, they feared the people. So they feared Jesus on one point, and they feared the people on the other point, so they just said, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, you're so oblivious to reality I'm not going to engage you any further. If you don't understand that John's authority was from heaven, remember, John was not ministering in the courtyards of the temple. John was not ministering even in the streets of Jerusalem. John was a voice crying where? In the wilderness, outside of the system. And God was working in and through the ministry of John. That's why Jesus came to him. He walked right by Jerusalem, came to the, the, the waters of the Jordan, and submitted to John. He acknowledged that God was at work in John, not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had turned in on itself. The temple worship had become a farce, a circus of retail religion and greed and exploitation. Jesus wasn't going to submit to that. No, he was going to curse that. But he submitted to John. So the question stands before us. Who has the authority to save you today? If you think it's because you belong to the local megachurch or the local small independent Baptist church, or you think because you are some part of a uh, historic uh, system like Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy or even Lutheran or Presbyterian. You're kidding yourself. The authority to save you is with Jesus and him alone. And I know that sound, may sound simplistic. It may sound, well, yeah, duh, Rick. No, no, that's not what we're hearing here. We're hearing that there is a system, a religious system within the world that would set, it, set itself up as 
God's spokes, spokesperson, the mouth of God to you, and, and call you to itself as the point where you are to be saved. All the way through the 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church taught that there was no salvation outside of its system. And there are those today that have that same mindset. You get some of these megachurches, especially if they have some um, strong, abusive, uh, charismatic leader going on there. It's somebody where the whole church revolves around his will. And his personality. And people begin to assume that, man, I, I got to stay here or I can't be saved. I mean, this is the, the, we're the only ones that have it going on. Or, or worse yet, we need, we got to keep this guy happy. We don't want to come under, under the wrath of, of our leaders. Hyper-charismatics teach that there's a covering within the church. You can't come out from underneath that covering or you will be attacked by demons. So this is not a stretch, folks. On this Good Friday, we must ask ourselves, who has the authority to save me? And if you are in some system, I don't care if it's Roman Catholic or, or Lutheran or Greek Orthodox or Presbyterian or Methodist or the local independent church. It doesn't matter. This is not a denominational issue. This is a, a, a default by the religious spirit of the world to set itself up as the alternative to Jesus in your life and then to demand your submission and set itself up as having the only authority to save you and it's outside of Christ. So the first lesson we have today is that Christ alone saves you. Not Christ and the system, not even Christ and you but Christ alone. So all through this Palm Sunday, since Palm Sunday, until the day, all through this Holy Week, we have saw this contrast getting sharper and clearer. It's a deliverance. Good Friday represents deliverance from judgment. A divine judgment that's falling upon the systems as represented in first century Judaism apostate Judaism not true Judaism remember there was true Judaism the revelation given to Moses was true the revelation followed by Joshua was a true revelation it was only later when the people began to either do things in their own eyes as they saw right or demand a king that began, things began to get shaky. In the beginning with Solomon, the monarchy just became a morally decadent, apostate king after an apostate king. So that the name of God was actually blasphemed among the nations because of the decadence and the behavior of Israel. The prophets arose to call the people back to the true revelation. And there wasn't one of them they didn't kill. But they maintained the view. Israel maintained the view that they had the temple. They had it going on. 
they had the true authority even in the midst of their apostate condition. And that is the way many of the churches are today. He that is a Jew is not one inwardly, outwardly, but inwardly. And the same thing as a Christian. He who is a Jew, a Christian, is one who is inwardly, not one just outwardly. And there's this outward Christianity has all the appearances, uses all the symbols, has uses all the terminologies, but it's a fruitless religion. And that's how you know it's not of God. It's fruitless. You can go there for the next hundred years and you will never taste of living water. You'll never taste the bread from heaven, who is and which is Christ. Okay. So this is, the, this is the contrast here. A new covenant we're learning today about a new covenant consecrated in Christ's own blood on Good Friday as opposed to an apostate system. An apostate system that began in first day century Judaism that opposed the apostles throughout their ministry and by the second century through the so-called apostolic church fathers gained uh, ground through the influence of Judaism and Greek philosophy that redefined the gospel, that developed into a medieval theology, that the Reformation attempted and made a good start to, to correct, but itself became a victim of it. And throughout the centuries now, throughout church history, there has been this challenge. Where is it we find our authority? The reformers were right to say we find our authority in the word of God alone. Luther was right when he said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. The reformers are all so correct, only correct to say that it is by faith alone in Christ's finished work alone. No righteousness do I bring. But these were men of their times as well. They were, these were men of a state church that placed demands, the state placed demands on their gospel. And they ultimately ended up having to compromise to some degree, even them, even these great reformers. And so throughout the centuries, there's been this challenge. Who's going to have the authority? And in Europe, it became the magisterium, the religious magisterium within the, the Protestant denominations that were just as corrupt and just as twisting of the scripture as were the Catholic magisterium, the authorities. And so God has brought revival time and time and time, great awakening of the 18th century, and so on and so on. And consider today, this Good Friday, your time of renewal and revival, if you will. Not because I'm anything, but because the Word of God is leading that to us. Leading us to us. To discover given it to us to discover and renew and refresh and understand that we are under Christ's authority alone. He alone has the power and the ability and the anointing and the authority to save. Okay, let's go on with our text. Mark chapter 12 then. We're beginning the conversation here. And he began to speak unto them, unto who? These people who couldn't decide whether John was from heaven or from men. He's speaking to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of Jerusalem here. And so 
he began to speak unto the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, is what we could read. A certain man planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, built a tower, and left it out to a husbandman, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandman a servant, his husbandman being the workers of the, the, uh, the vineyard, that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he said unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also unto them, saying, or reasoning, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen, and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read the scripture, The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, sought to lay a hold on him, but feared the people. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. End quote. Jesus just spoke a parable against the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And in the parable, what he's defining and describing is redemptive history throughout the history of Israel in which the religious leaders of Israel were in a progressive hostility towards God and even towards his son. Every time the husbandman, even the Lord of the vineyard, I should say, sent uh, servants to the workers of the vineyard, the tenants, farmers, the husbandmen, as it's called, instead of complying and giving the Lord of the vineyard his share of the fruit, they not only gave no fruit, they not only were fruitless, but they were hostile and mistreated the servants and then began beating them, and then began killing some of them, and ultimately killed the Lord of the Vineyard's son. There was a progressive hostility there. Listen, what's wondrous about Good Friday is not that Christ died for a bunch of lovable people who were begging to be saved. Is that Christ came and saved the people who were Utterly unworthy of it. We were his enemies. The Lord of the vineyard sent his son after being aware of the fact that there was a progressive hostility. 
And so when man was at his worst, listen, man was not at his worst in the garden, at the garden fall. That was just the beginning. Man was at his worst, and he was showed himself to be at his worst when he drove spiked nails through the hands and the feet of the Son of God and pierced his side and then stood there and mocked him while he bled and died that horrific death. That was the bottom. That was, it was appropriate that darkness filled the day. Literal darkness. It was the high point in Satan's career. It was the low point for man. And yet we understand that it was God's means of redeeming his people. Even as we stood and mocked him, even as we stood and agreed with his crucifixion, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So one of the lessons of Good Friday is not that Christ died for us because we were so worthy. Or as Rick Warren said, because he just felt we were so lovable. I mean, that's the kind of false teaching that goes on today. The Bible says nothing of that. The wonder of God's mercy and grace and even his love towards us while we were yet his enemies is that Christ died for us while we were in that condition. It's hard to emphasize this enough. It's hard to make this point strong enough. But I hope you hear me. Okay, let's go back to our text now. Now we're going to put forward the Mark chapter 14. I'm going to pick this up a little bit. Mark chapter 14 and our Good Friday readings and our Good Friday exhortations. Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. A brief reading. We read this, quote, And as they did eat, Jesus is in the upper room now with his disciples. The shadows of the cross are growing long. The day is growing cold and dark. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is my blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant, however you want to translate it, which is shed 
for you. Jesus is about to give his life. Not because we are so lovable, as we just learned, but even at the worst of our condition as a humanity. Remember, God calls his own out of the sewer. We were right there with all of humanity. And he called us out. And he consecrates a new covenant with us. A new testament based in his blood. A new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Okay, now we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to spend the rest of our time just meditating on what the new covenant and the blood that was shed that day for us means. I am encouraging you now to, I'm encouraging you to, to take a breath, take a moment. I'm not trying to entertain you. I'm not that good. <laughs> In fact, I was thinking the other day, I'm really not that good of a preacher. <laughs> I don't think it's my primary gift. But I do love the Lord, and I do love his word, and I know what he means to me, and I know the transformative power of the gospel in my own life. And I know, sadly, tragically, how little of that is available to you today. Though it is available elsewhere, how little of it is so I'm grateful that you're listening, grateful and happy for your sake that you're listening, and not that you're listening to me, but that you're listening to the Word of God. So let's continue to do that. Hebrews chapter 10 now. Hebrews chapter 10 reads this way. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Now that's what we've been talking about, isn't it? Talking about the fact that the law had a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. That was all it was ever intended to be. And we've already agreed several times, and I can't emphasize it enough, instead of honoring it as that, as a signpost pointing to the Messiah, it instead turned in on itself and hardened into a system that regarded itself as the end result and not Christ. It regarded itself as an alternative to Christ. An alternative to Christ. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now, Let's understand what the word never here means. I'm not going to go into a word study. I'm just going to emphasize, when you hear the word never, what do you, what do you understand? Never. <laughs> yeah, it's that simple. Never. It can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the corners, the comers, thereunto perfect. For then... Would they have not ceased to be offered? If those sacrifices were effectual, 
and where they're able to make those who came to it perfect in the eyes of God. Would they have to keep coming? Of course not. Do you realize that the Roman Catholic Church still offers a sacrifice in the Mass? They still offer sacrifices? Of course, they, they try to connect it and tie it to the crucifixion and, and have some mystical um, uh, theology that goes around how that they're reenacting the cross and all these type of things. But the average person doesn't understand any of that. They just understand there's a sacrifice, and it's a repeated sacrifice. That's why they have Mass every day. It's the same thing within the Greek Orthodox Church. It's the same thing when you're told that you have to go to church or you somehow have sinned. Even in the lowliest little evangelical church with 20 members, if you think you've missed a service and somehow you've missed out on something and that you are in less standing with God that morning because you missed church than you were had you gone, you are still relying upon some external sacrifice to that which was absolutely all-sufficient in Christ alone. And why would you do that? Because it's our natural default, beloved. Our natural default is to fall back on some kind of activity that is ours to complete, which becomes interpreted as a contributing and vital factor in your salvation. What I'm saying to you today, this Good Friday, is that Christ's sacrifice on your behalf is absolutely, unequivocally, eternally sufficient. And there must never be any point of religious activity, including going to church, including your morning quiet time, including your giving, including any other type of clerical practices, if you get involved in ministry, any of these things must never be regarded as meritorious, even in the slightest. So the next time somebody tells you, if you don't tithe, you're under a curse, you tell them they're a liar. Next time somebody tells you if you don't come to church on Sunday night that somehow you're not pleasing to God, you tell them you're a, they're a liar. You tell them Christ is sufficient. Now, do, you, do I think you should go to church? Absolutely. You should get as much fellowship, encouragement, and exhortation as you can find. Although, I must admit, you find very little of that in most churches today. Do I think you should give? Of course I think you should give. Christians are givers. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And those who receive that gift are those who themselves become givers. Are we under a mandatory tithe? No. Are we under a curse if we don't tithe? Absolutely not. Christ became a curse for us. And I can go down the list of things today that clergy people and pastors and leaders put on you that somehow communicate to you that your acceptance with God is probationary. You're good now, but if you don't do this, that, and the other thing, look out. I've had people even tell me they grew up in systems, uh, evangelical systems, in which they believed that God was constantly on the, on the cusp of becoming angry with them at any moment. They may say or do something, and, and who knows? 
or that they can lose their salvation at any moment. No. They're lying to you. Let every man, though, though every man be a liar, let God be true. And what we're hearing in the text is, is truth. God's word to you, beloved, on this Good Friday. For then they would have not have ceased to be offered, because that worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. If you have a guilty conscience, ask God to cleanse it. Ask God to renew it. Ask God to deliver you from it. And he will. The blood of Jesus is sufficient and it's powerful enough to do so. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again made of sins every year. I once belonged to a liturgical system where every week we stood and dutifully confessed our sins in front of a priest who would then give us absolution. And it wasn't Roman Catholicism. In the Anglican Episcopal system, that was just routine. Every week. Every week we were reminded of our sins. As if there was the cleansing was probationary. You were good on Sunday, but throughout the week you started piling things up again, and boy, you better get back to the service on Sunday and stand and confess your sins and receive absolution again. Over and over and over and over again. What is that, beloved? I beg you to consider what is that but a backdoor denial of the all-sufficient nature of the blood of Christ. And yet it goes on every day of the week. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again of sins every year. For it is not possible by the blood of goats, bulls and goats, to take away sins. Uh, we don't have much concern with blood, the blood of bulls and goats these days, but these days. But we do have concern with this notion that something that we offer, something that we bring to God, is somehow going to make us happier with us than we are in Christ. Or at least keep him happy with us. Verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, being the Son, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. This is the Son speaking to God the Father. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. None. Period. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. What was that will? Jesus did it throughout his life. But what was that will? It was the supremacy of that will that he submitted to in the Garden of Gethsemane. What were the words you recall? Father, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, if not, thy will be done. He became obedient, Philippians 2 tells us. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Verse 8, above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He took away the law as a means of gaining the necessary acceptance, the observance, and obedience to the law as the means by which we gain acceptance with God and did away with it that he may establish the second. What's that? The fact that Jesus submitted wholly, unconditionally to the will of the Father. And in him we did the same thing. Jesus was representative of his own at that point. By the which will, verse 10, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Done. Period. Sanctified. Set apart. By what? By the blood of Jesus. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then he goes in verse 11. And every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The futility of human effort and its attempts to save itself apart from Christ is just that, futile. But this man, speaking again of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, forever, sat down at the right hand of God. No high priest had ever sat down in the Holy of Holies because his work was never done. There was no chairs, no stools in the Holy of Holies. He went in standing upright. He offered a sacrifice. They had a rope tied around his waist at the temple in case, uh, in case he had sinned or was un, uh, unworthy and he would be killed. <laughs> and they would have to drag him out. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood not his own, offer it, and then walk back out. He never sat down. The work was never done. It was going to be ongoing. Just like those who tell you that you got to come down to the altar call every Sunday night, or you got to get saved to stay saved, and you got to stay saved if you're going to get saved, and yada, yada. It's confusing. It's distressing. It's, it's absurd. Religiosity. But the good news that we are celebrating this Good Friday with all joy but solemnity as well is the once forever, once permanent sacrifice of our high priest who is now sat down at the right hand of God. He is sitting at the right hand of God. His work is finished. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool who are our enemies as well. The last enemy of which will be defeated is death. Verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, so we had the event of Christ's sacrifice that is a witness to us, and we have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit also assuring us that these things are true. After, after that he had said before, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. And their sins and iniquities, iniquities will I remember no more. That's the essence of the new covenant, folks. See, under the old covenant, sin was an issue. And it was never fully dealt with. It was covered. And that we had to have continual, daily covering. Annual observances. Because those, those sacrifices could not take away sin. Could not cleanse the conscience. But under the new covenant, we are told that this covenant he will make with us after those days, after what days? After those days of exile, Israel comes back. There's a new covenant that includes Gentiles, thanks be to God, that I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Verse 18, where there is remission of these things, there is no more offering for sin. Listen, you, there is no more offering of sin because there's none necessary. That's his point. You can't go outside of Christ and find any remission of sin. You can't go outside of Christ and do enough good works to find acceptance with God. Those would be works of offering, works of sacrifice, that somehow you can earn acceptance with God. No, there is no more offering of sin. Christ did it. All, once, permanently, complete, done, fine. We need to hear that, don't we? I need to hear it daily. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, now, the writer is going to break out in this doxology. And having a high priest over the house of God, doxology of exhortation, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without, without wavering, the left or to the right for he is faithful that promised and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some is let me interject that's not about going to church that word that verse gets used all the time about people you have to go to church it says right here in Hebrews 25 that's not what he's saying. Clearly, the context will tell you that's not what he's saying. He's talking about giving us each other mutual exhortation and encouragement. And in this historic context of this letter, it is those who are under persecution. Let us stick together. Let us hold together and encourage one another, even in times of persecution. And not run and hide as is the habit of some but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we all see the day approaching. As we all see the day approaching. 
For if we sin willfully, here now, that after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. He's not talking about backsliding Christians there. He's not talking about backsliding Christians. He's talking about people who hear the gospel. He's talking in this historic context of Jewish Christians who hear the gospel but still believe, still believe that there's some merit in the sacrificial system that was still operating at the temple at that time. I can't emphasize this enough. These were Jewish Christians who were still having a hard time making a clean break with the sacrificial Levitical system at the temple. And they were being tempted to believe in Jesus and continue the sacrifices at the temple. And he's saying, if we do that, we're sinning. We're not supplementing our faith in Jesus. We're sinning. And we're doing so willfully. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You can have the sacrificial system at the temple, or you can have faith in Christ's sacrifice, but you can't have both. And if you think you can, you're in trouble. There is no more sacrifice for sins. There's only the one in Christ. And if you're relying on that system, as well as your professed faith in Jesus, you're really saying that you're relying on that system. In other words, to profess faith in Christ and his offering, his sacrificial offering, and to have faith in some other system is to simply have faith in that system. It's a, it, it needs to be understood as a denial of Jesus. Not a supplement of Jesus, but a denial of Jesus and a trust in the system. And what you get is a certain fearful looking for a judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Verse 27. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall ye be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Oh my goodness. Imagine the author of this letter when he was writing those words. He's begging, he's pleading with us to consider and take heed to his warning. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And then he concludes with verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So once again, we see the kindness of God in his Son. The kindness of God shown towards those who were utterly unworthy of that kindness. Not only did, not only did God save us, forgive us, he adopted us. He made us partakers in Christ's inheritance. He made us full-fledged adopted children so that Jesus is now our elder brother. 
He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We are in the family, in the household of God. We are now a nation. We are a chosen people. Called to declare his holiness, his goodness. Let me turn there. You are a holy nation. We are strangers and pilgrims abstaining from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. But Peter, let's close with this. Let's close our Good Friday observation with this. As a result of Christ's once and only, once for all, permanent, unique, exclusive, final sacrifice that frees us from any need to look outside of him for supplements or additions, any need to fear, for we are fully accepted in the Beloved as a result of what the Beloved did, not what we did. That we can say this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You are in Christ today, due to mercy. You never had merit. You never, there was never anything. All of God's choosing and saving of you was grounded in his free choice of you, not because he looked down the annals of time and saw that you would believe and then chose you. That's not how it works. That's a false teaching. The teaching is, is that God called us at our worst time in human history. Listen, sin isn't made real by the law. Sin is made real in that we crucified the Son of God. We crucified the, him, the one who by crucifying purchased our salvation, though we were ignorant of it at the time. And he was raised for our justification. And now sits at the right hand of the Father, we he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. So that we are a Christian in the next moment and the moment following that. Not because of our strength of character and virtue, but because of his intercession. Let me close with this exhortation. Remember this Good Friday. Salvation, beloved, is of the Lord. <laughs>